Last weekend, we began uh, a Lenten series uh, called Journey to the Cross. Lent is this season of 40 days prior to uh, Easter, prior to Good Friday and Easter weekend. And we've been looking at the journey, uh, the personal journey, and, and the journey of Christ toward the cross. When we use that phrase, journey uh, to the cross, it really describes uh, the journey that Jesus made for you. And so it's a historical journey. Uh, last weekend, we looked at the big, big picture that Jesus Christ being in very nature, God, did not consider his godness something to grasp or to hold on to or to cling to, but emptied himself to enter human form and become a servant and to be obedient, even unto death, even unto death on the cross. And so that's the big picture uh, it, uh, across the scope of eternity of what we're talking about. But the journey to the cross also describes a journey that you and I must travel. It's a personal journey to come to the cross and to encounter all of what God has done for us there. I mentioned last uh, weekend the uh, section of Scripture in Matthew 16, and that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this weekend, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. I invite you to focus and listen and carefully hear God's Word, God's voice in our midst. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, or, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, will you stand and let's pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the journey to the cross as we discover that journey in Scripture, as we discover the truths of that journey in Scripture, Lord, reveal the things that each of us needs to know, needs to hear, and apply them in our hearts and our lives. In this season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This place, Caesarea Philippi, is a very interesting place. We could talk a lot about the history of it. It's about 30 miles to the north of the Sea of Galilee. As you can see on that map, the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus spent 70% of his time. Almost all of the ministry that you read about went on around the Sea of Galilee. That's where he gathered his disciples. That's where he healed so many. That's where he preached to so many. It's almost halfway to Damascus. If you look at it and see it on a map like this, it it hits us that it's about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get and still be in Israel proper. And so it's as far north as he could go. And for some reason, Jesus chose to take his his disciples on a a sort of a staff retreat. We're going to go and get away. We're going to get away to this place and, and talk about some really important things. It was a remote location. It was away from Capernaum. Jerusalem was the big city. Jerusalem was the busy, busy place. Capernaum was also busy because it was a crossroads. There were a lot of things going on there, a lot of commerce going on. But it was not nearly as busy as Jerusalem. That was the center of the world. But then to pull away further and further to the north had to have a special purpose. And it was a deliberate movement as he pulled away so that he might talk to them about some really important things, the beginning of his journey toward the cross. In terms of the earthly ministry of Jesus, this is the beginning point of his journey to the cross. But this must have seemed like a really odd choice to the disciples, to to anyone that might have heard about this. The reason is, and everybody knew this, it was a pagan place. It's the most pagan place that we ever see Jesus visiting. This place far to the north in Old Testament times, it had been a place for Baal worship. But then during the Roman times, it had become a horribly detestable pagan place for the worship of a god named Pan. Now, now if you don't remember any of your Greek mythology or Greek Roman mythology, I'll just remind you that Pan was a a creature that was half goat and half human in form. He he was thought to be the god of the wild, the god of shepherds and the god of the fields and the flocks, the god of the mountain wilds. Pan was a fertility god, and so Uh, It was thought that he would spend the winter uh, away in the underworld and then would 
come out in the springtime. And so the festivals of spring and the fertility festivals of spring were about trying to see him come forth and, and give some sort of fertility blessing. And so it was a really horrible place uh, in terms of, of pagan worship. In fact, it was called the Gates of Hell. You can go there today, and over there on the right, you can see that tiny cave is the large cave that I just showed you. And there's a mammoth, huge, gaping cavern with water in it. Uh, and the waters were believed to be bottomless, leading into the underworld. And it was believed that this was the passageway to and from the underworld. Uh, we don't always go there, but we've been there a number of times when we have traveled to Israel. The pagan worship and sacrifices to the god of Pan were practiced outside to try to entice Pan to come out and return and end the winter. And those pagan practices were horrible. They included ritual prostitution and even sexual interaction between humans and goats. I don't even like to mention the, such things. If ever there was a red light district in this ancient world, this was it. This was the worst of the worst. And there were, there were Decapolis cities that had terrible things going on in them and, and pagan worship going on. But this was the worst of the worst. And, and it's hard to imagine for us, why would Jesus go here of all places? Why, why would Jesus, I mean, if I was taking a staff retreat, I can tell you that there are places in Orlando I would have to kind of find out about, but there are horrible places, red light type places, that I don't think I would want to take my staff in order to have a spiritual life retreat. Amen? What was Jesus doing? We have to listen a little bit to the conversation to try to understand and find out. So let's listen to it. Jesus begins with this question, who do people say the Son of Man is? That was one of his favorite ways to refer to himself. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they answered, they said, well, some say John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others say Elisha, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. A lot of different ideas about, about who you are right now doing miracles, you're doing all kinds of things that nobody has seen. And then Jesus asks this critical question. Some have suggested it's the most important question ever asked anywhere, any place. But who do you say that I am? It, it is the critical question. It's a question that determines everything in terms of eternity, in terms of our destiny. And Simon Peter was the one who immediately replied. It just kind of bubbles out of him. What? Well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It, it, it just was no question in his heart, in his mind, who Jesus was. And Jesus answered. He said, well, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He used his uh, Simon, son of John. He used his sort of old name. And he said, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't get this just because you studied a lot. You didn't get this because you tried really hard. You got this because God revealed it inside of you. A reminder of how faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
And so this comes forth from him. But he went on and he said, and I tell you, you are Peter. (coughs) And he, he gave him the new name that he had given to him, Petros. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, they all must have been kind of looking around a little bit because they, that's where they were. Caesarea Philippi was the place of the gates of hell. We don't know how, exactly how close they were. On this rock, you are Petros, um, which means a, a little piece of rock. That's what that means. But on this rock, he's shifting, the confession that you just made, I will build my church. We're reminded of what we studied last week, how the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth. It doesn't at the name of Peter, every knee will bow and tongue confess. It doesn't say that. Uh, it's very, very clear that Jesus is the rock. Peter himself is clearly not the rock, and we see that in a couple more verses. Um, but the rock is Christ himself. And this confession is the key. It's, it's not everything. Christ is the rock, but the confession is critical. By this confession, that is the way that we gain access to the kingdom. That is the key. These are the keys to the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's a powerful moment of revelation. Jesus was revealing the coming power and authority of his church. Now, we're not talking about an institution. We're not talking about a building. We're not talking about some some, uh, organization of any sort. But we are talking about the power of the connection of believers redeemed by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's church. That is the church. And so he's talking about that. It is so powerful. It almost seems as though we've been trying ever since then to rediscover and reclaim that power. It it is such an amazing revelation. Jesus was revealing this coming power and authority because he actually says that, that I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind. It's a future sort of statement. He strictly then charged them to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, we might say, wait a minute, isn't that the good news? Isn't that what we're supposed to be sharing? It was not time yet for this to be revealed. So why reveal it here? I think it's critical for us to understand. You see, Jesus was right in Satan's face. And it was very deliberate. He didn't wander into this place and say, well, I don't know what's here. I don't know what's... No, 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 no. There are no coincidences here. Jesus was right in Satan's face. And I have to tell you, I've been there. Uh, One time that I was there, it was just creepy. It's just weird because you think about all of the weird things that had gone on there and the weird, strange sacrifices that had gone on there. And and it's such such a pagan place. Other times it's been very peaceful because we... We really seem to focus on the word of God and the things that were claimed there. But I can tell you, Jesus was not one bit afraid of this place. Not one little bit. 
Because this was where he chose to deliberately declare war at the gates of hell. If you'll think about that for a minute, I don't know why I was just reminded of a point in history. Do you remember when uh, Ronald Reagan went to the Berlin Wall? And he went right there to the Berlin Wall and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And it was such a big moment, it was such a big deal. Well, this is even more dramatic because it's a whole lot more at stake. It's a whole lot bigger. But also, it would be more like if Reagan went to the Kremlin and pounded on the front door. I'm in your face, Satan. I've come to defeat you, Satan. Is is every bit of what Jesus is saying. Jesus effectively declared war at the gates of hell, but he also declared victory at the gates of hell. And it's really important that we understand that. We declare war and we declare victory. That's what Jesus was doing. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. This church, this powerful work that God is pouring out, that God is doing. And he also began to reveal how this war would be fought. The scripture says that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. You know, here they had gotten about as far away as you could from Jerusalem. Things were getting a little feisty down there, a bit dangerous. They might have thought, you know, maybe it's a good time for us to go off and just sort of be in a little cloister off someplace. That wasn't a plan at all. In fact, he went right to the gates of hell and said, I'm going to march right down there and defeat you in Jerusalem. He began to show that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. You see, it's very, very clear that the cross is central to his rescue mission. It's central to his plan. You know, we often say it, that if you were the only one that he needed to die for, he would die for you. That's where he would be. And for many, this was not the sort of Messiah thing that they had been looking for. And and Peter, to some degree, uh, had bought into that, apparently, because Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, you can write this down. Just note to self, if ever tempted, it's not a good idea to rebuke Jesus. Amen? Yeah. It's not a good idea. He says, far be it from from you, Lord, uh, this shall never happen to you. It's not the last time that he'll be, you know, in this vein. He's going to, you know, pull a sword while they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, things like that. But Jesus set Peter straight. He says to him, get behind me, Satan. Now, Peter was not Satan. We know that. Peter was not Satan. But listen to what he says. He says, you are a hindrance to me, like Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Another way to say this is, when you talk to me like that, you sound a lot like Satan. I don't know if you've ever had friends like that, but every once in a while there's someone that comes around and you say, you know, you may not say it, but the way you're talking sounds more like Satan than like God. There is a kingdom way 
of accomplishing these things. And it's different from the ways of man. It's not the way you would think, Peter. It's not the way I would think. It's not the way any of us would think. He's going to come in servanthood and sacrifice. And you become a hindrance to me when you do not surrender to the things of God. Wow, if you don't get anything else, we need to get that. We are a hindrance to Jesus when we do not surrender to the things of God. When we do not surrender to his way. So in the Gospels, this is the beginning of the movement toward the cross. To pull way to the north and then begin this journey of 130 miles or so. That's a long ways, isn't it? It's a long ways driving. It's a lot longer way walking. But the thing I want you to see is, is, is what this means. What does this mean for our journey to the cross? You see, our journey also begins at the gates of hell. You might say, wait, wait, wait a minute, Pastor Jeff, I haven't ever been there to Israel or any of these things. That's not what I'm talking about. What are the gates of hell? The gate in any city, in any ancient city, was the most vulnerable point for attack. You can go and look at them, and great effort was made to make the gate secure. Lots of times it was reinforced with all kinds of masonry, and you had to go in and turn and turn again in order to get through the gate. It was the only way to keep it safe. But it was the vulnerable point. It's the way that armies could batter their way in was at the gate. And that's what the gates of hell are in your life and in my life. It's that place that is most vulnerable, the entry point that Satan can most easily get in, that point at which Satan can most easily get a hold of any one of us. Whatever vulnerable place there is that you might be drawn into the clutches of the devil. Now, we could talk about this in terms of salvation, but it's also about our daily Christian living. It's about where we live all the time. I would suggest to you that the gates are different for each and every one of us. Your gates of hell are different from my gates of hell. For some, it's a specific sin or a temptation. For others, it may be a point of rebellion or rejection of God's word. Uh, I, well, I just, choose not, I'm, I just choose not to believe that part because I just sort of don't like it. And so I, I'm going to not believe that. could be any number of things. It could be materialism, the desire to take hold of lots and lots and lots of things. It might be lust or it might be pornography. It could be alcohol or some other substance that is abused that we are vulnerable to. It might be the need to control things or situations around us. It might be our tendency to gossip or to judge others. We could go on and on and on. But it is that point at which Satan attacks us because he knows that's the gate. That's the gate. And what I want to suggest to you is that the most vulnerable place in your life is also the most vulnerable point for Satan. It's the place where you can find victory over him. He attacks you there because if you find victory there, he is done. He's not getting in anymore. If you find victory in that place at the gates of hell, you are going to find freedom 
The writer of the book of Hebrews described it this way. Hebrews chapter 12, the first couple of verses. But Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it's talking about the great witnesses of the faith, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We know what it's, what it's like to prepare for a race. You need to lose a little weight. Amen? <laughs> we know about that. But even more so, this sin that clings so closely. We're not going to find victory. We're not going to find uh, the endurance that we need as long as that sin is still clinging to us. Our ESV calls it the, clean, the sin which clings so closely. Some of the other translations are really great. The King James calls it the sin which doth so easily beset us. I really, I really like that. I don't know why. It's just I grew up and we would talk about besetting sin, the sin that so easily besets us. The NIV says the sin that so easily entangles us. And it, it has an image actually in the Greek of like briars that catch you while you're trying to run, that catch you because you got too close to them. The New Living Translation calls it the sin that so easily trips us up. We're beginning to know exactly, we know, don't we? If we think about it, it's that sin that we have confessed more times than we can count. It's that sin that we have grown weary battling. It's that sin that that we may have put off dealing with. Well, I'll deal with that later. I'll deal with that later. I'm going to live a good Christian life, and I'll deal with that later. Well, you know, the victory there would make everything clear. It's that sin that we sometimes coddle or we excuse. We often think of it as the, as the end point, the thing I'll get to eventually, when really it's the thing we need to begin and start with. That's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't have to deal with any sin. He did, but he did go to the gates of hell. And I think it demonstrates this for us. For Peter, his besetting sin was this tendency to focus on human solutions. Some of us get caught up in that too, don't we? And the temptation to rebuke God. Boy, he's going to have to get over that, isn't he? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was a strong leader. He was, he was a great leader. That is probably why Jesus chose him. I see the leadership ability. You need some shaping. <laughs> you need some tempering. But you have these leadership qualities in you. And one of the struggles that he had was he always thought he knew a better plan than Jesus. We see it all the way really to the end. This gate thing is the entanglement that we must lay aside so that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. Once we find freedom in this area, at this gate, we are set free to run with endurance. And that's why we don't want to put it off. And the devil knows that. The devil is scared silly. You'll find victory in that one area. Because you are going to be such an amazing, victorious Christian follower once that takes place. How do we do that? Well, the next verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, that's it, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, there's such joy in this journey. There's a joy that is before us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider or count him who endured from sinners such hostility against him, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's our journey to the cross. Our journey to the cross is one of looking to Jesus and the victory that he has won. Considering, contemplating him who endured so much for us. That's why we're in this season. That's why we're thinking and focusing in this way. Why? So that we will not grow weary and faint-hearted. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but are there a few of us, I think, who have grown weary and faint-hearted? Yeah. If ever we've been in a season of weary and faint-hearted, this may have been it. I, I talk to people a lot who say, I've just grown weary. I just, I'm just tired. And we need to find this victory. And we need to find this endurance to move beyond that. Our journey begins when we confess Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, we confess him as Lord, but that's not some casual or ritualized exercise. Well, okay, I say he's the Lord. No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about surrender. We sang about surrender earlier. We confess him as Lord, but but not in some casual way. We declare him to be the Lord in everything that we do in the face of the enemy. We declare this truth. That one thing that we thought that the Lord could never set us free, he can. That one thing that we have had defeat in again and again, he can give us victory in that. And in the face of our gate of vulnerability, That's where we face Satan's gate of vulnerability, and we find victory. That is where we find victory. And that is such a powerful part of our journey that we want to focus on in these weeks. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you you speak to our hearts, and we recognize that... um, Though we are in a room, we are alone with you. And in that conversation, there's nobody else. It is simply you and and me and each one of us. And God, we pray that you might speak to our hearts about that gate. The gate that we've left open or that gate that we've left loose or that, that thing that we've been afraid to deal with or that we we have not wanted to confess. God, we pray that you in these days will help us find victory as never before at those points of vulnerability, at those those weak places in the wall. God, that we may run with endurance the race that you have set out before us. Speak to us as we confess our hearts before you. Jesus' name.